You ever look back on your life and think about things you would have done differently had you known then what you know now? You know what I mean? I can look back on my own life and almost see myself back there making decisions and choices and having certain perspectives about my own life, which I can see now are actually mistakes. But at the time, it wasn't nearly as clear as it is today in hindsight. Of course, we all make mistakes. We all have misunderstandings about life at times, and yet most people, when we make it through those consequences of those mistakes, misunderstandings, most of us learn something valuable from those bad decisions or those wrong perspectives. I think most of us become a little bit wiser each time, which is why we're able to look back and see a better way. Decisions and choices that would have been better than the ones that we actually made at the time. And in fact, I bet if we could see our entire lives all at once, I bet we'd do some things differently, wouldn't we? Because some of those decisions and choices that we make weigh us down, sometimes for a very long time. And so we can end up carrying the weight of those mistakes and those hurts and those uh, misunderstandings and those wrong perspectives, bad choices. We can carry that into our relationships and our future choices about what to do with our lives moving forward, and it affects everything. It affects everyone else in our lives. As a pastor, I talk to a lot of people about their lives and their choices, and if I've learned anything from those conversations over the years... It's that, first of all, everyone has a story to tell. Everyone at some point has gone through something significantly difficult which has played a part in shaping their life. And secondly, because of those difficult experiences that we all have at times, uh, we sometimes carry heavy things, hurts, sorrows, burdens, Sometimes guilt and shame and regret. We all carry heavy things at times in our lives, sometimes because of choices that we've made, and yet sometimes things simply happen to us that we didn't ask for and we don't deserve. But they're thrust upon us nonetheless, and we can be left carrying the weight, the consequences of those bad choices even that someone else made. Right? Sometimes life isn't fair. Sometimes we're forced to deal with hardship that we did not bring upon ourselves. And so for those of us uh, who are parents, for instance, when we look at our children, we try to instruct them about the choices that they make, don't we? Even, even how to deal with life when it doesn't treat us fairly. Why? Because we have a perspective on life now that they don't necessarily have where they are, right? Because we don't want them to make the same mistakes that we did. So we try to give them sound advice and good instructions so they won't have to carry the weight of those heavy things that we've had to carry through our own lives. Because often, we've been where they are. And at times, we can see things that they cannot yet see. And so we try to spare them the trouble that inevitably comes from making poor decisions. But listen, we all know that there are times when the only way our children will learn the life lessons that they need to learn is to carry some heavy things on their own from time to time. We know that because we are the very same way. Okay, how, how loving would it be for a parent to never allow their child to ever experience the consequences of their own decisions, right? 
if we shield our children from every ounce of pain and sorrow and guilt and hardship because of their own choices or even the choices of others, then they will never learn. They will never grow. They will never mature into all that they could be. And so at times we allow them to feel the weight of their decisions. And just as a loving parent will allow their child to feel the weight of his or her own choices so that they will grow and mature and become stronger and wiser, so too God allows us at times to carry heavy things because of our own choices and sometimes even the choices of others to no fault of our own because that is one way that we grow, that we mature, that we become stronger and wiser. It, it's how we learn to be all that he has created us to be. And I'm convinced because of these stories that we have in scripture that there is often a direct correlation between the depth and duration of the hardships that we endure to the depth and duration of the growth and maturity that needs to happen inside of us. That may not always be the case, but very often it is because God sees our entire lives at once. Right? He's not limited to only seeing our past or uh, our present. No, God transcends time and space. He sees our beginning and everything after that all at one time. And so he instructs and teaches us. And yes, he even allows us to carry some heavy things at times so that we will learn what we need to learn in order to become all that he intends for us to become. Which means when we find ourselves carrying heavy things in this life, instead of always praying, Lord, change my circumstances, sometimes we should probably be praying, Lord, change me. I was a, a police officer for several years after my first college, and there were all different kinds of people who you would sometimes have to arrest and put in jail for all different kinds of reasons. But among those folks, there were some who you would find were repeatedly being arrested and put in jail over and over and over again. And over the years, I found that among those people, there was a common trait. Nothing was ever their fault. They were never guilty. They never did anything wrong. It was always someone else's fault. And because they were never willing to learn to grow, to mature, to become wiser because they never wanted to feel the weight of their own choices. They were constantly suffering the same consequences for those choices over and over again. You see, God allows us to carry heavy things in our lives at times, yes, but listen, it is never without a purpose. We don't always know what that purpose is because we can't see the whole picture, but he does. He sees it all, and through it all, he's trying to teach us so that we can grow and mature and become stronger, ultimately to develop into the men and women that he created us to be in order to fulfill the purpose that he created us to fulfill. Okay, and sometimes I wish there was an easier path. I'm sure we all do, but there isn't. Because just like our kids, if we don't feel the weight of our own choices, our own decisions, and even of those around us, then we'll never develop the character and maturity that we must have in order to do what he has created and called us to do. And we have some really powerful examples of this in our story today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph. And this story really underscores not only the need for us 
to carry heavy things at times in our lives, but also to seek God's purposes in those times so that we can become all that he created us to become and do all that he called us to do. So let's turn there together to Genesis chapter 42. If you have your Bibles, we'll have it on the screen as well. This is right where we left off last week. This is the part of the story where Egypt and all the surrounding areas are under an unprecedented famine, which was foretold by Joseph as he interpreted two dreams that were given uh, by God to Pharaoh. And because of Joseph's brilliant plan to store up grain the previous seven years of plenty, Egypt not only has enough food now for its own people, but foreigners are coming from far and wide to buy food from Egypt as well. So let's begin by reading the first five verses. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine that was in the land of Canaan. So the famine is now in full effect. It has spread far beyond Egypt to the surrounding areas, including Canaan, where Joseph's father and brothers are. And so Joseph's father, Jacob, says to his sons, why do you look at one another? I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Which really seems a bit strange on the surface that these otherwise hardworking, industrious, incapable men are standing around during a severe famine doing nothing, looking at each other. But there's more to it than meets the eye because 20 years earlier, Joseph's brothers sold him to a group of traveling traders who took him to Egypt and sold him into slavery. And it becomes painfully obvious as the story progresses here that not only have they not forgotten the wrong that they did to their brother, but the lingering effect of their bad choices even 20 years later is clearly manifesting itself in the guilt which they are now feeling and have been feeling actually all this time to the degree that the idea of even talking about Egypt with one another where their little brother is presumably still enslaved, let alone actually going there, it seems unthinkable to them because they're ridden with guilt and so they're all standing around doing nothing. It's not like they didn't know that Egypt had food. Everybody knew. The whole world around them was going there for food. Everybody knew that Egypt was the place to go if you wanted to survive this famine. And so if you look at Jacob's question to his sons, why do you look at one another? If you read that in the, the ancient Hebrew, it literally means to look questioningly at one at another. In other words, the brothers were beside themselves at the thought of having to go to Egypt to buy food for their own families because of their own shame. And so they're looking at each other as if to say, what do we do now? The early 20th century theologian Donald Barnhouse, referring to this conversation between Jacob and his sons, he wrote, the word Egypt in their ears must have sounded like the word rope in the house of a man who has hanged himself. Joseph's brothers are still dealing with what they've done to Joseph. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. But for the time being, they agree to go down to Egypt to buy grain for their families, except for Benjamin. Because Benjamin, as far as Jacob is aware, is the only surviving son of his dearest wife, Rachel. And so now Benjamin is the favored one, just as Joseph and Rachel had been before him. And so there's no way Jacob is going to let Benjamin out of his sight 
which is a glimpse into Jacob's own weight that he's carrying, which we'll also talk about later. But for now, let's keep reading as Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt. We'll read verses 6 through 17. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. That's significant. We'll come back to that. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So it's getting interesting now because Joseph's brothers not only have no idea that Joseph is the busier, the, the second in command of all of Egypt, but when they come before him to buy food, they don't recognize him. Living as an Egyptian official, as Joseph has been, he's most likely clean-shaven. He's wearing all of the symbolic garments and accessories that represent his high office. He has an Egyptian name now, and as we'll see in a moment, he's speaking to them in the Egyptian language through an interpreter. This isn't the brash 17-year-old Hebrew boy that they remember. And on the flip side, Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. And in that moment, the waves of anger and rejection, which he's carried for so long that he thought he had left behind, they all come flooding back in an instant. He not only recognizes the fulfillment of his dreams as his brothers bow down before him, but he recognizes a golden opportunity to give them a taste of their own medicine. And so Joseph disguises his identity, but he makes no attempt to hide his anger toward them because for 20 long years, Joseph had carried the weight of injustice. He probably didn't even realize the toll it had taken on him these last few years as his life had turned around for the better. Remember back in chapter 41, verse 51, after being given a new position and a new wife who bore him two sons, Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In other words, I'm finally putting all that behind me. Obviously, he thought he had moved well beyond the injustice of his past, but all it took was to lay eyes on his brothers for Joseph to once again feel the weight of so many years of mistreatment because of them. And so he deals roughly with them and he accuses them of spying. He says, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. He wasn't talking about the famine, by the way, when he says the nakedness of the land. That was an ancient idiom, an ancient saying which referred to uh, locations in a particular nation which were the most vulnerable to attack. In other words, 
Joseph is accusing them of trying to size up the weak points in Egypt's defenses. And there, there was a constant tension in Egypt at the time, a fear of a possible invasion by the Hittites or Assyria. And so from that standpoint, this questioning by a high Egyptian official of a large group of foreign men would be completely reasonable, which is also why the brothers continue to assert that they are in fact all brothers of the same family because relatives who actually were spies at this time would have never traveled together and risked the entire family if any one of them was caught. So their defense to Joseph is, look, we're all brothers. Obviously, we're not spies because spies would now never travel together like this, and everybody knows that. In fact, uh, Ephraim, the Syrian, he's a, a well-known 4th century Syriac Christian, early church father, wrote that the brothers entered the city conspicuously as a group of 10 in Semite apparel, made the charge of spying by the Lord of Egypt preposterous on the face of it. So if Joseph's accusation seems initially reasonable, the brothers' manner of entrance into Egypt and their response to Joseph really uh, proves his accusation quite unreasonable. But it doesn't matter because Joseph is having none of it, right? Not because he thinks he has the better argument to continue his ruse, his masquerade, but because he's furious. He's carried the weight of injustice in his heart for a very long time, and now it's finally reached a boiling point as his brothers come before him. And of course, he doesn't trust them in the least. Right? He knows they're not spies, but he also knows what they did to him, the grave injustice that he suffered at their hands, and here they are now before him. They're telling him about their little brother, Benjamin, who's supposedly safe and sound at home. Benjamin from the same mother. And so Joseph says to them, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there's truth in you. In other words, Joseph is thinking, show me the other brother or did you do to him what you did to me? Are you even capable of telling the truth? And in the meantime, why don't I put you in prison just because I can't? And all of this is symptomatic of the weight of injustice that Joseph has been carrying all of these years. It's not that his brothers didn't deserve to be put in prison and treated harshly, but Joseph didn't have to deceive them. Right? He didn't have to put on a show and try to trick them in bringing their brother to him. He was the second most powerful man in all of Egypt and the ancient world. He could have revealed his true identity could have put his brothers in prison and sent any number of people to go fetch his father and his other brother. But Joseph chooses to deceive them and deal harshly with them because of the weight of what's been done to him. Look, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced injustice in your own life. I'm sure many of you have. I certainly have, actually, not to the degree that Joseph did. And yet there have been a couple of experiences in my own life where I was treated unjustly, to say the least, and the consequences of that treatment was very costly personally to me and to my family. And in at least one instance, it probably took me a better part of a year to get past that, to get over it. I've counseled with many people over the years who have carried the weight of incredible injustice in their own lives for many years, sometimes for decades. Because the truth is, it is a heavy thing to be treated unjustly. 
And the greater the injustice, usually the heavier the weight that we carry. But listen, we always have a choice when we're treated unjustly. You see, we are never powerless in those situations. I know it feels like we are, but we're not. We are never powerless when injustice is done to us because we always have a choice. We can either allow that injustice to eat us alive, to steal our joy, to rob us of our peace, to wreck our lives, or we can choose to focus on the sovereign hand of God in every situation, even those where we're treated unjustly, and accept the fact that he has allowed that heavy thing in your life for a reason, a purpose. We may not know what that reason is, but that doesn't mean he's not working on our behalf even in every moment that that injustice is happening to us. And of course, that doesn't make the weight immediately go away. Sometimes we carry heavy things for a season, but nonetheless, it is our choice to allow that heavy thing to either crush us or to make us stronger. That is the power that we wield when heavy things are thrust upon us. When a spouse is unfaithful or a false accusation is made about you at work or someone steals from you or you're treated unfairly or you're punished for something that you did not do, will you allow that heavy thing to crush your spirit under the weight of it? Or will you treat it as God intended for it to strengthen you? to actually build you up and mature you so that you can accomplish even greater things in your life and become all that he's intended for you to become. If you're at all familiar with Peter's life in the Bible, you know, it took him a long time to get this, but he got it. First Peter 1, 6 and 7, he writes in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, for season if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And then Peter says something profound. He says, so that. This is a very important phrase, a very important part of this passage. Peter tells us that we will be grieved by various trials for a season. And then he says, so that. In other words, listen up, guys, because this is the reason you will be grieved by various trials. This is the reason for the heavy things that sometimes you have to carry. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you see. The heavy things in our lives, they can either ruin us or they can make us stronger so that we can bring even more glory to Christ as we are refined in that fire. But we have to choose that. We have to make that choice. How are we going to handle these heavy things? Because there are times in life when we have to deal with the consequences of someone else's doing. And it may very well be unjust for us to have to carry that weight. But it is never without a purpose. And that choice, and that's what it is, that choice to either be crushed under that weight or made stronger by it is yours alone. We find later on in chapter 45 that Joseph chooses to focus on God's purpose for the injustice done to him and the ultimate outcome is far greater blessing for both Joseph and his family than they would have ever experienced if Joseph had allowed himself to be ruined by it. That's in chapter 45. For now, 
Joseph is still in the thick of it. Let's keep reading. Verses 18 through 28. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you're in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. So they did. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in what we saw, the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen to him. That is why this distress has come upon us. This is their private conversation. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. He returned to them and spoke to them, and he took, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them without them knowing, by the way. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. They turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And so even as Joseph continues the charade, we see his heart begin to soften as he hears his brothers express their deep regret at what they've done to him. And it's significant that they immediately attribute the harsh treatment they're receiving and even the money turning up in their pouches as a form of punishment by God for what they did to Joseph 20 years earlier. You see, for the past 20 years, the brothers had carried the weight of their sin. They were carrying it still in this story, clearly from the beginning of this chapter and all the way through. Their consciences are burdened by the weight of their sin because it is a heavy thing to carry the weight of our own sin. And you know what? It is supposed to be. Our sin should weigh us down. We should feel the weight of it to the point that we long for the freedom from it that can only be found in Christ. And yet there is a, a systematic and concerted effort in our culture today to try and remove the weight of our sin by replacing absolute truth with relative truth. What you believe is fine for you and what I believe is fine for me. So I won't make you feel bad about what you believe as long as you don't make me feel bad about what I believe. Because truth is something that's different for everyone. My truth may not be your truth, and that's okay. As long as no one judges anyone else, we can all feel good about our own individual definitions of truth, and that way everything is relative. Nothing is absolute, and no one ever has to feel bad about anything. So we artificially try to remove the weight of our sin through relativism. The problem with that is... No matter how much talking we do to convince ourselves otherwise, according to his word, sin is still sin. And it still only leads to death. And there is still only one remedy for our sin. 
And that remedy is still only and always Jesus Christ. And it still only comes by way of his grace through faith. And it still requires repentance when we're convicted by the weight of our sin, which is why a holy God allows us to carry that weight to begin with. You see, even the weight of our own sin serves a purpose. Ultimately, for our own good, that we might turn to him and turn everything over to him in humble submission, that we might become all that he's created us to be. Because once we're given over to Jesus Christ, listen, once we're given over to Jesus Christ, he lifts that weight of sin off of us and washes us clean. We still sin but we've been freed from the sentence of death so that we no longer have to be slaves to that sin, but we are free in him. And yet there are people who will never experience that freedom because they refuse to recognize the weight of sin for what it is. And instead, as the Apostle Paul said, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. It is the tragedy the great tragedy of this age. And of course, it's nothing new, really. We see throughout Scripture, since the dawn of humankind, men and women have attempted to dismiss the weight of their own sin. Just as Joseph's brothers did from the moment they threw him into that pit in the ground. But over the years, that heaviness has taken its toll, and now they're feeling the full weight of it. The Bible scholar John Walton writes that in chapter 42, we discover that in the 13 intervening years, the guilt and recriminations experienced by Joseph's brothers have enslaved and imprisoned them no less than Joseph's chains had done to him. They clearly recognize their culpability and acknowledge punishment is therefore due. That is the heaviness of sin taking its toll. That is what sin does when we carry the weight of it, which is what makes our freedom in Christ all the sweeter. The fact that he's forgiven every sin we've ever committed and every sin we're ever going to commit. Joseph's brothers were still carrying that weight, but they were on a collision course with a profound forgiveness and restoration that comes later in the story. It is actually a truly beautiful foreshadowing of our story and the Christ who offers forgiveness that we neither deserve or can even ask for without his sovereign leading us to that, without his sovereign will leading us to repentance. Again, that comes later in the story. Let's finish the chapter for today. Verse 29 to the end. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. 
Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So the brothers return home, minus Simeon, who's still locked up in prison back in Egypt. And as soon as they make it to their father, Jacob, they begin their long explanation of what had happened. Of course, leaving out some key details as they were so fond of doing. They say nothing of their own imprisonment for three days or that Simeon is actually even in jail. And of course, they still don't come clean about their own plot to get rid of Joseph after all these years or the fact that they found money in one of their pouches on the way home. So these brothers, the nine of them now, are still trying to paint the situation in a better light than it actually is to try and convince their father to allow them to take Benjamin back with them. They don't want him to know how precarious the situation really is. And it may have worked until they get to verse 35. They open up their sacks that they traveled with and discover that each had a bundle of money. I can just picture them falling out on the floor in front of their father. And it says they were all afraid, including Jacob. But if you examine this a bit closer, we see that most likely Jacob was afraid for a very different reason than the brothers. The nine brothers are full of fear because the money in their pouches just further heightens their sense of guilt and what they believe to be divine judgment, which they've already expressed when they found money in one of the pouches on the way home. The weight of their sin just got a lot heavier, and so they're beyond frightened as this is surely a sign of God's judgment to come. But it's important to recognize that Jacob had no reason to fear that, right? He wasn't the one who dropped Joseph into a pit. He wasn't the one who sold Joseph into slavery. And he wasn't the one who covered up the crime through deception. Jacob had no reason to be filled with guilt or fear of divine judgment. So what was the source of Jacob's fear? Well, think about it. Every time Jacob's sons leave home, they return to their father, minus a brother, with a sack full of extra money and a fantastic story to explain what happened. When they came back from shepherding the flocks, they were without Joseph, but they had extra money from selling Joseph to the traveling traders who, were, uh, who took him to Egypt. And they had this great story, complete with a bloody robe belonging to Joseph. When they come back from Egypt to trade for food, they're without Simeon, but they have plenty of money and a wild story to tell, complete with a request that their father let them take another one of his sons back with them. Jacob isn't stupid, and for him, this is hardly a coincidence. As they tell this later story and now suggest that Jacob allow them to take Benjamin away just before all the money falls out on the floor, right? It is highly likely at this moment that in Jacob's mind, his sons are plotting against him by selling Joseph into slavery and then selling Simeon into slavery, and now they want to take Benjamin away and sell him into slavery too. This is further evidenced by what Jacob immediately says to them after he sees the money. He says, you have bereaved me of my children. In the Hebrew, that phrase is the word shakol. It's literally translated as me, have you made childless? 
He is very clearly and directly blaming these nine sons for the loss of his other sons. And he goes on to explain, Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. And it doesn't get any kinder from there. Jacob continues, my son, referring to Benjamin, notice he doesn't say your brother. My son shall not go down with you for his brother, he's referring to Joseph. Again, he doesn't say your brother. For Benjamin's brother is dead, and now he's the only one left. In other words, if I let you take Benjamin and you get rid of him too, then my last true son is gone. Jacob is livid with these nine boys, and he's lost any and all trust that he may have ever had in them. Jacob's fear when he sees the money and he's putting two and two together in his own mind that the, that the sons had brought back with him is a fear that he's going to lose his last son by Rachel. And so his emotions are laid bare in the last statement of this chapter. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my great hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And in that statement, Jacob echoes what he said about Joseph back in chapter 37 when he believed that Joseph was dead which also reveals the fact that for the last 20 years, Jacob had carried the weight of his sorrow. He never got over the loss of Joseph, who he believes is dead. And the suggestion that his brothers take Benjamin back to Egypt with them just brings the weight of all of Jacob's sorrow back, which he's carried for so long, it brings it all to the surface and it spills out of him in this raw emotional response to the brothers who he obviously holds responsible. And you know what the truth is? This world is full of sorrow. There probably isn't any greater sorrow than when we lose someone we love, either by death or by the breaking apart of a relationship loss and the sorrow that it brings is a heavy thing to have to carry. And mourning the loss of a loved one or a relationship is right, by the way. We were created to be able to experience sorrow. It's a part of our makeup. It's a part of what makes us human. In John 16, 21 and 22, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion and they begin contemplating his death, he says to them, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is being born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Notice Jesus didn't say, don't feel sorrow. He didn't say, hey, it's wrong to feel sorrowful. No, actually, he said at times you will feel sorrow, but it's only for a season because all the while, even in our times of great sorrow, he is constantly working for our good. When we're filled with sorrow, he is there working for our healing our restoration, and ultimately our completion in him to a place of joy that he says no one can take away from us. But even in the sorrow, he is always with us. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Okay, it is not wrong for us to be filled with sorrow when we experience loss, but we have to be willing to trust him even in those times of sorrow First of all, 
believing that he's always with us, and secondly, knowing that there's a purpose even for our sorrow. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, our sorrow. So again, God is always with us in our times of sorrow, comforting us in, in those times. He's always there. But really, why have sorrow to begin with? What's the point? What's the purpose? Why not just give us joy from the beginning? Why do his followers have to experience times of sorrow? Well, Paul explains it in verse 4. He says, so that we may be able to comfort those, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, he allows us to carry the weight of sorrow so that we can comfort others when they experience times of sorrow with the same love that he shows us. It's actually one of the ways we learn to be more like Christ. Okay, look, Jesus carried heavy things in his life on earth. He carried the weight of the greatest injustice that has ever been perpetrated on another person in the history of mankind as he was nailed to a cross, being the only truly innocent person to ever walk this earth. Jesus carried injustice. He carried the weight of the sin of the world as he hung there dying. And he carried the weight of sorrow, born out of a love, of course, for the human race that was so heavy that he asked the Father to forgive those who were killing him while they were killing him. And this is the life, by the way, that we are supposed to emulate. But we cannot represent him in this world if we cannot identify with his life in this world, which means at times, just like he did, we're going to have to carry some heavy things. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. It's a, it's a season of sorrow. Paul longed to obtain the righteousness, he says, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 9 through 11. One translation refers to it as the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, it, identifying with the sufferings of Christ in our own suffering was actually a concept that the early disciples understood and accepted as a part of God's plan for their lives. Those heavy things that we're often forced to carry were seen as a blessing by those in the early church. It was actually a privilege for them to bear that weight and thus identify with the sufferings of Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings. Incredible. Yet so much of the modern church today has chosen to simply view suffering as always harmful or always an attack from the enemy or at the very least something that we should always pray against at all times. Something that we must get rid of as quickly as possible. And in working toward that end, I fear we may actually be missing out on all that God is trying to do inside of us. 
molding us, shaping us, strengthening us, making us more like Jesus Christ. Okay? When we find ourselves carrying heavy things in this life, and we will at times, instead of always praying, Lord, change my circumstances, maybe we should be praying, Lord, change me. Help me to see and even embrace your purpose for my life in all of this. Help me to identify with you in my life more than ever before as I carry this heavy thing. Because we can either allow those heavy things that he sometimes gives us to carry to derail our faith and crush our spirit, or we can allow them to make us stronger, better, more like Christ, so that so that others who are carrying heavy things will experience Jesus Christ, his love, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his compassion, his forgiveness, his strength and support every time they experience us. And that choice to shrink back in fear and defeat or to trust in him, that he is actually making us more like him as we carry those heavy things, that choice is ours to make and ours alone. And it comes as we bear that weight for a season, the weight of our own heavy things. Let's pray.